complete second career. Um, she has traveled uh, with my dad, uh, alongside my dad, not just as the wife of my uh, father, but as an independent uh, scholar and uh, historian and uh, investigator in all of their times. They've made almost 30 years, uh, 30 trips over the years to uh, Israel and Palestine. She's helped lead tours, she's excavated, she's organized and planned most of their trips. She organized two family trips when we went as a family for a summer in 69 for a year in 1972-73. And what many people don't know is that she read all the books that my dad assigned to his <coughs> undergraduate and graduate classes. My dad was always busy reading technical stuff, and so mom would read all of the historical narratives and the novels, and anything that he might assign, she would read and screen and tell him, yes, this is a good one for you to use, this is one not for you. She's an avid reader. She's read so much on the history of this region uh, and has been a remarkable teacher and educator and foundation for our family. And now, as you know, she has committed her time full-time to being a caretaker during these uh, declining years. And so for that, not your declining years, for that we are... Uh, eternally grateful and I want to invite my mom to come up and share with you a little bit about our family journey and her journey uh, as we express our deep respect and admiration. You want to get started in the center? Well, I feel like I just heard my eulogy. <laughs> well, get it right. <laughs> Well, John and I have been at Otter Creek this summer more than we have in 47 years, and it's been a lovely experience for all of us, and we thank you for that. Thank you for the warm welcome. When the guys asked me if I wanted to share anything with you this morning, I at first thought, no, they know too much. Their depth of knowledge far surpasses mine, and I'll just listen. But as I reflected more, I thought maybe I did have something worth sharing. And what I think I can offer beyond a lifetime of stories, and that's why I'm sticking to my script, because, <laughs> because if I got started telling stories, I would never stop. But as I reflected about it, I thought what I can offer is further encouragement to hear conflicting narratives. I believe John and I, for far too long, heard one side of a story. John would love to be speaking to you this morning, and I wish he could. But I believe he would say a loud amen to everything you've heard this summer. I know he would. He's the patriarch, as David has said. He led the way for all of us to go. But our offspring have led us in hearing conflicting narratives, and we're grateful for that. John loved that land like few Westerners have ever loved it. The Dean of Bethlehem Bible College introduced John several years ago as someone who knew his homeland better than he did. And I've been asking myself, what could have taken John and me so long to hear fully both narratives? And if any of you are asking, why is all this material new to me? Why have I not heard all of this before? I want to tell you, you're not alone. 1967 was an important year in the life of our family. In June of 1967, as David has mentioned, 
John became the pulpit minister for Otter Creek over on Granny White Pike. In June of 67, he made his first trip to the Middle East. It was just after the Six-Day War. Jerry Collins has asked me to mention a sermon that is in print that John preached on October the 27th, 1967 in the Otter Creek pulpit. It was called Race or Grace. And that sermon is pretty indicative of what David was talking about with his father. Yes, I have a copy of that. All right, thanks, Jerry. Jerry is a real cheerleader. <laughs> John had dreamed of going to the Holy Land since childhood, and he arrived there shortly after the Six-Day War. And his pictures and stories show tanks still in the street and the walls coming down. It was an exciting time. Great excitement over Israel's stunning victory. I, on the other hand, was 10 years old in 1947 when I became vaguely aware of the need for a homeland for the Jews. I remember being upset about the Holocaust. I do not remember hearing much about the Palestinians. I came to Lipscomb as a freshman in 1955 I don't remember this struggle ever being mentioned in my Bible classes. I don't remember much talk of injustice of any kind. We were focused on church doctrine much more than injustice at that time. In 1969, John had an opportunity to study archaeology at Hebrew University. So we took the boys, as David has said, at 11, 9, and 8 and spent the summer in Jerusalem. We lived on the Israeli side. And so the Israeli viewpoint colored all our thinking. We met many Palestinians. In fact, we began to call a number of them our friends. We felt sorry for their loss, but I don't think we had any idea the extent of the loss. In 72-73, when we went back, we lived on the Arab side for a whole year, but still our closest associations were with Israelis. And so we stayed more attuned to that narrative. Why? Well, I think there are a number of reasons, large reasons and small reasons. The Israeli narrative was so prevalent in literature and culture for the popular uh, viewpoint. We read the works of Elie Wiesel, Herman Woke, Leon Uris, as David has mentioned, Kaim Potok. We read the biographies of Golda Meir, Abba Eben, David Ben-Gurion, and Moshe Dayan. We saw movies like Exodus and Cast a Giant Shadow. And the music. There was beautiful, haunting Israeli music telling their story in English. And that was huge. At that time, we were unfamiliar with the sounds of the music of the Palestinian culture. They were strange to us and most of them were in Arabic. So we didn't hear their story. And John was interested in archeology. span The story of Matsada was a thrilling story, partly true, partly man manufactured, but it held a grip on the minds of many people. And so through all the trips of many years, our major conversations were with archeologists and intellectuals and professors all sharing the Israeli viewpoint. We knew many Palestinians, 
but they were generally not among the intellectuals like our Israeli friends and colleagues. I think our friendship with two families illustrates this. We met the Gonins in 1969. Both were professors at Hebrew University, and they, with their two young sons, visited us here in Nashville and were our house guest in 1970. They were very impressed with Southern hospitality. Some at Otter Creek. The aunt Ilana was a professor of English, and she told of leaving Austria in the 30s as the Nazis were coming to power. Her parents established a Viennese bakery in Jerusalem. She told of being in the youth groups with all the future leaders of Israel as they sat around the campfire singing these haunting songs and trying to decide which one of those uh, people around the campfire would be one of the future leaders of the, their much desired homeland. We were impressed with all of this. She took us to the Galilee. We visited some of the oldest kibbutzim with her. We met the leaders. They showed us the tunnels where the children had escaped to safety during the Arab raids. We heard the Israeli narrative. On the other hand, the Abu Eids have been very close Palestinian Muslim friends for 44 years now. But that friendship for a long time was on a different level. Jamil and John visited often in Jamil's antiquity shop on David Street in the Old City. And all of us have drunk a thousand gallons of tea, it seems like, <laughs> in that little shop. It's been a very special place for us. Jamil always welcomed John with John McRae, my friend, you're always in my heart. Jamil's knowledge of artifacts and where they had been found was extensive, and John wanted to learn. And so, that's what they talked about. His wife and I had a warm connection with lots of hugs and gesturing and smiles, but she spoke no English and I spoke no Arabic. So of course we weren't hearing the story. I will never, f so when did our perspectives change after so many years and so many trips? Well, David has mentioned to you that he and Michael went with us in 2000 for a conference in Bethlehem where John was lecturing, and that after we came back from that conference, we were in Jerusalem. And so we went to see the Abu Eids. And for the first time, David met their son, Mahmoud. Mahmoud was a journalist. He had just returned from studying in Bulgaria. His English was impeccable. And I will never forget what he said to David when they first met. David, it is your responsibility to allow me to assist you in any way I can because my father loves your father. That is Palestinian hospitality. <laughs> so that's when the, it began to change. Mahmoud had many connections among Palestinian intellectuals, writers, physicians, and politicians, and he opened all that world to us, and we've been on a journey since. Then there was David's discovery of this material that we had not seen before from Jewish human rights organizations. He shared it with us, and we read it, and we were touched. So when did it all change for us? 
when we opened our hearts, our eyes, our ears, and our minds, when we began asking questions, when we became closer friends with Palestinian intellectuals, when Palestinian intellectuals began writing in English, for those of us who don't read Arabic, and when John and I became more closely associated with professors in Bethlehem who began to trust us to hear their story. Then we became acutely aware of the need to hear two narratives. Then our perspectives began to change. And I think if I have anything worth saying today, it's this. Regardless of what you've learned in the past, regardless of what you've thought before, remember enough of this class to know there are two narratives and we've all heard too much of one of those narratives. Yes, we took three little boys to the Holy Land. We taught them Bible and geography and archeology. span We introduced them to unfamiliar cultures, but they led us to re-examine preconceived notions and to hear more fully the anguish of both peoples. Thank you. Thank you so much. last time that we're hoping to try and take a tour either in 2018 or 2019. Uh, if you would like to stay in touch with us about that, if you want to hear about those plans, I'm going to pass around this sheet. It just says name and email. Wrote it on the back of a flyer. Uh, if you would, just sign, put your name and email on there and we can be in touch about any, uh, any trips that we're doing. Uh, I've heard that Otter Creek's taking a trip in 2018, I believe. I spoke to some folks about that. Um, it sounds like it'll be a great pilgrimage, a good experience. It also sounds like you all may not actually go into the West Bank because there's been advice not to do that, that it's unsafe to go. Uh, so it sounds like you may just go to Bethlehem and you won't actually see any of the things that we've talked about here or in terms of Hebron, Ramallah, Nablus, a lot of those things. Um, and, and it's understandable why a lot of tour leaders don't want to do that. You know, they're afraid that there's you know, liability issues, it may not be safe, so on and so forth. So that sounds like it'll be a very good pilgrimage. If you're interested in going and actually seeing in depth the West Bank and a lot of the things that we've been talking about, please do sign up and we can we can try and organize that sort of an experience. Um, and so it, it is completely safe. Yeah. I spend a month there every year with a group of students. We don't take any chances. It's safe. And just if you don't want to sign up there, I'll put all three of our email addresses. If you want to email us, that's on our contact list. We can follow up if we decide to do yeah. it. Great, so that's going around. If you'll sign up, that'd be amazing. So we have until, we've got about 20, 30 minutes, um, and we basically just wanted to open this up now. We've told you all the things that we think are worth telling you, at least in a Israel-Palestine 101 class. So at this point, whatever questions you might have, we will try to field them for the last little bit. Yes, starting here. Michael, what is it that gives you all hope that there will be peace in that part of the world someday? 
So uh, we're going to skip that question. <laughs> we'll come back to that next week when I'm in New York. Um, what is it that gives us hope? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think when I talk to Palestinians about this, you know, their response generally is, um, there's no other choice. There's no other choice but to have hope. Because when you turn to despair, that's when things like suicide bombings happen. That's when the violence increases. Violence is often uh, grows out of that place of despair and desperation. And so I hear a lot of Palestinians saying, we've got absolutely no choice but to hold on to hope. And we're at all the peace work we're doing now, we're doing for the next generation, they'll say. We're doing all this for the children. Everything's for the children. Um, and so I think I hold, on, I hold on to hope because the alternative is unacceptable. Um, I hold on to hope because I've seen historically all such activities like this end eventually. Empires fall, occupations end, apartheid ends, it all ends. So I think there's a historical inevitability to this. Um, and I, I guess at the end of the day, I just prefer a world where we have something to work for, something positive to work for, and something to hold on to that's, uh, that's hopeful. And so I, that's for me, I guess. I have a kind of a gut reaction. Uh, I, I have hope because there are people like Michael. Um, you know, there are days when I'm here in the States when I really have no hope. I don't see any way forward for this country. Um, but there are days when I'm in Palestine, among the Palestinians, experiencing their hospitality, listening to the next generation talk, listening to how much they want peace, how much they want to share the land and to stop the violence. Um, and, and I have reason to be hopeful. I'm hopeful when I look at this group. I mean, how many years ago, uh, it's not too many years ago, we couldn't imagine a conservative evangelical church in Nashville, Tennessee, committing a whole summer to hearing the Palestinian narrative. Things are changing. People are opening up their eyes and ears and saying there is another story to hear. I asked this question to an Israeli physician friend of mine a number of years ago in the West Bank. I said, how do you have any hope? What gives you hope? And he said, he looked out at a group of Palestinian and Israeli physicians eating together. And he said, this is what gives me hope. He said, this will end, maybe not in my lifetime, maybe not in the next generation, but history tells us this will end. The bloodshed will stop. Israel will cease to exist as a Zionist state. There will be a new future for this land. That's coming from the Israeli human rights activists. So, I don't know. We have hope because we can't help but have hope. And, and also, to say, organizations like the ones that I mentioned, um, like the Parents Circle Families Forum, where you have Israeli parents like Rami El-Kanan, whose daughter was Israeli father, grandfather was an uh, Auschwitz survivor. His daughter was killed at 14 by Palestinian suicide bombers. And then you also have people like Abi, uh, Abu, uh, or Ali Abu Awad, whose brother was shot in the head by an Israeli soldier at a checkpoint. And you have these people who are coming together and saying, in our name, no other bloodshed will happen. That we have the most right to want this bloodshed to continue because we, should have, we have the claim of vengeance. You've taken my loved one. I want to get even. If anyone has, uh, would have kind of a vested interest in this going forward, we could claim that. But in fact, because we know what it's like to suffer and to lose what is dearest to us, it's from that shared place of suffering that we're going to move forward for peace and reconciliation. Because as Rami says, after the six days of, seven days of mourning, you wake up on the eighth day and you have to choose, do you want to take the path of revenge and retribution? Or are you going to take the path of forgiveness and reconciliation? Because the question that, that you're hit with is, what can I do to make sure that nobody else ever has to feel this same pain? 
And so it's seeing people like that who are coming together after having loved ones killed, um, often for senseless reasons, uh, and are saying, this, this has to stop. In our name, no more killing will be done, and they work together for peace. I think as long as we have organizations like that, there's hope for the future. Okay, we've got one right yep. um, Four or five weeks ago, you alluded to that a lot of your hope was kind of, um, was probably going to be a political process even in America. And you just, just kind of said things have to change politically in America. So can you kind of expound on maybe what the current, not the last bit, is really most of two political, major political parties kind of have the same policies on these things, so what, what do we do to continue? We wait for the next election. <laughs> yeah, this, this, I, I don't see any reason to be hopeful with this election. I think the only one or two candidates who had any courage to speak out about justice uh, were defeated in the primaries. And I think, I think right now the, the two candidates that we're facing are going to maintain a status quo for American policy with no hope of change. And so, it, it, it happens at a grassroots level. It happens with us electing different congressmen, different senators, uh, changing the culture, uh, allowing a different conversation to occur in our churches, in our schools, teaching our children different. Um, eventually, I think the United States comes alongside of Europe and other places to say, we want justice, we want justice. But I don't think it's going to happen in November. There was one here. It's a common question, a good question. I think Michael can speak to the of it better than I can, but I just wanted to pick up on one phrase when you said a wholeheartedly peaceful response. I think it's very important that we hear what's behind that narrative and not put up. Everyone is looking for the Palestinian Mandela, and that's not right. It's not fair. It's not a fair expectation. Mandela was a terrorist. Right. Right. It's a cop. It's a common perception that if we just had the next Mandela arise in Palestine, advocating for for, for nonviolent resistance, that that this would change. I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but it's a common narrative here. And the reality is, the first Intifada was that peaceful nonviolent resistance, a grassroots resistance, and Israel destroyed it with overwhelming military might while the world sat by and watched. The second intifada was bloody and violent, full of suicide bombing. It was a very different response. But the Palestinians have tried. They continue to try. There are daily, weekly, nonviolent activities in Palestine that are not carried by the national media, and that Israel squelches with tear gas and live ammunition and tanks and munitions. And so there is this sense that we have with the Palestinians would just organize and be nonviolent. Maybe something would happen. And the simple answer is that's not true because they are in the midst of one of the world's most oppressive military occupations. Do you want to add to that? Do you have a follow-up? Well, I was going to say, taking civil rights, and obviously there are decades of efforts that were being repressed, but they just kept coming with a response that the world ultimately could not deny. And I'm I'm not saying it's the right, but I'm just contrasting with maybe that's what's still impacting this narrative 
I mean, but even even while in the, and I'm not a civil rights scholar or a South African scholar, but even while you had Mandela's movement, even while you had MLK's movement, you still also had militant, violent wings of both movements as well. You had Black Panthers, you had Malcolm X, you had, uh, and I'm forgetting some of the names in South Africa. And so even in those two examples, it wasn't a wholesale or a, a kind of a, a united nonviolent movement. There was a united piece of it. Uh, but it wasn't completely that all black Americans were practicing nonviolence against their, you know, their white oppressors, and the same thing in South Africa, and the same thing in Palestine. And there hasn't yet been a Mandela, there hasn't yet been an MLK, but there are nonviolent leaders. For instance, Abi, uh, Ali Abu Awad, who I mentioned, has just established the first um, national Palestinian center for nonviolence, and he is working hard from the grassroots to try and build some kind of nonviolent movement. He's also established an organization called Roots, uh, which is trying to find, create reconciliation conversations between Palestinians and settlers, the most radical of the Israelis. So you do have those leaders who are, who are, kind of, who are coming up. Um, but you run into a lot of other issues in Israel, like um, theological reasons that people think they should support the Jews as opposed to the Palestinians that didn't necessarily exist to the same degree in the United States or in South Africa. So you've got this whole other element put onto this. Rob, you have something quick, and this is not a response to you, but I want to take what they said and take a quick turn for us in America. Because Israel wouldn't be doing what it's doing without American support, one of the real hard questions for us who begin to learn this narrative is not why aren't the Palestinians protesting this way or that way, but why aren't we? And one of the things that's a little bit hopeful for me is in the middle of all our turmoil over Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, back to two competing narratives, is the fact that there's beginning to be some connections between the African-American community in America and the Palestinian community about shared narrative. And so one of the questions for us as we're wrestling with what does justice look like in our own society is to ask how are we going to support justice for the Palestinians. Where is the civil rights movement in America for Palestinians? Because we have certainly endorsed the other narrative. And so I think there's a question for us in this process to say, where will we begin to express our voices? Uh, where will the MLK in America for Palestinians be? Yeah. Yeah, just real quick. One thing that I did not mention, and I think it gives me hope, is that I see more groups of American children going, being as interested in the living studies as in the ancient studies. And I think where it began to change for us a little bit, and where it gives me hope for other people, is that we will perhaps be as interested in hearing what Jesus said about justice on what
some of those nations have sort of made their peace with Israel, possibly to the detriment of the Palestinians. So can you talk a little bit about that? I'll try to do it very briefly. These are, are wonderful questions, and all of them could, could take our whole time, so forgive us if, if we just touch on answers. But I think one basic thing to know is that the, pal the Arab world is not uniform, as you all know, just like we're not Canadians, and, and we're not like folks in England just because we speak English. So Palestinians are unique in the Arab world. So when people look and say, why aren't the, the Saudis and the Jordanians and the Lebanese and the Syrians more sympathetic to the Palestinians, there's, there are many, many reasons behind that. Um, um, you know, the Turks are not even Arabs. So people look and say, wow, Turkey and Palestine, why aren't things alike there? You know, they didn't even speak Arabic. It's a whole different culture, a whole different language and, and uh, community. So there are historical reasons why the Palestinians were viewed differently and why many in the Arab world have not come to the aid of the Palestinians in the way that we think they ought to. They have come to their aid in many ways, donated billions of dollars, uh, stood for them in many ways, but they haven't always welcomed Palestinians into their community for political reasons, for cultural reasons. Long-standing history, Palestinians were better educated than other areas in the region. They were, they were more Christian among the Palestinians than in other communities in the area. Um, there was a lot of historical reasons why Palestinians were not always welcomed into the Arab world. And it goes far beyond my expertise and the time that we have to address that. But I think it's, it's important when we look at what's happening in the region to not just say, they're all Arabs, they all ought to blend together, and they all just ought to live there peacefully and share their stories together. That's just not the case, just like it wasn't the case across Europe with all the white people there who spoke different languages. It's a very multicultural area in the I've seen, I saw this in a church where a pastor was preaching on why we uh, need to support Israel. And he had a map of the Middle East, and Israel was in blue, and then every other country was in red. And so his argument was, what, what we're asking of Israel is to give up land to the Arabs, but look how much land the Arabs have and how little land Israel has. Uh, and talking in that way is a way of, of disconnecting uh, Palestinians from any claim to Palestine, right? Well, we talk, of, a lot of folks will, who, who are really um, uh, supportive of, of Israel's claim to the land will often not even want to talk about Palestinians, they just want to talk about the Arabs that are there. Because if we just call them Arabs, then we can make the argument that Arabs can go wherever other Arabs are, because they're all Arabs. But by calling them Palestinian, you are saying that they have some claim to the land of Palestine. And so do watch the way that people talk and name things. Labels and names are very important. Language matters. Do folks call them just Arab? Do they call them Palestinians? And why is that language being used where it's being used? There was a question in the back, I think. Um, did you talk about the spending power of city 
and sell it to Jewish settlers. And he was he was he represented kind of the second and third party. So the Palestinians who lived in the old city didn't know that they were selling their land mm. to Israelis who were going to take it over. That was his job. And so we got to talking. I didn't play my cards. I just started asking him some questions. But what he got to was eventually the Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock, the sanctuary, the Haramah Sharif, eventually that's going to go away and we're going to build the third temple. And I just looked at him and said, how? How is that going to happen? He said, God. God will take care of it. So I don't know if he was suggesting that God's going to take care of it by an earthquake or a lightning strike or that God is going to ordain, God is going to ordain a radical settler to go in and blow up the the Dome of the Rock. And he was saying very clearly, God will take care of it, that structure will disappear, and we'll build another temple. It is a tremendous fear, absolutely. Other, are there any books to be read? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you'll write to me, I'll send you the reading list that I send to my groups. I have a two-page reading list of suggested uh, readings. The most prominent Palestinian intellectual died a few years ago, and that was Edward Said, who is the, the most well-known refugee. He was a professor of English studies at Columbia in New York, written multiple volumes about the Palestinian narrative and the peace process. and. Uh, so he's the most widely recognized international intellectual who's written on the Palestinian narrative. But there, there is a, a tremendous amount of literature available now on the Palestinian story. So go write to me at that email address. I'll send that to you. Could you include like news outlets? That yes, there's a, there's a whole series okay. of links to that as well. Yes. If you also, you can go to my blog if you like, which is just myname.com, michaelmccray.com. I have a tab that says resources, and I have links to several books, several documentaries, news sources on both sides, so you can check that out. <laughs> Real quick, our sign-up sheet, where is that? Do we need Do we need more pieces of paper? Are we good? We're good. Okay, great. Thank okay, you. So a few minutes ago, you raised the question of why we Americans aren't protesting on behalf of Palestinians. And, and I want to answer that question by tying it in a knot, and then ask what we reasonably ought to do if we're looking for a balanced perspective. Because I, the, the reason that I would not is because I have friends who are Jewish. And the, as, as you mentioned before, that's been connected politically, the Jewishness and um, the Israeli state. Um, with anti-Semitism visibly on the rise, in Europe to the point that their relatives are beginning to wonder if they need to leave those countries. And the rhetoric here ramping up, at, at the same time that it's doing that with anti-Muslim rhetoric, um, I would not be comfortable at all making a, any kind of public protest or public stance on behalf of Palestinians because my the people that I actually know would see it as frighteningly anti-Semitic. Now, I, I would be comfortable having conversations with them looking for that common ground, but going public as part of a group, no way am I doing that with the way that politics in this country are running. So, so, so then, then, then where's, where's that ground to actually do good while 
not completely freaking out the, you know, the, the sons and the granddaughters of Holocaust survivors. That yeah, incredibly difficult question. One, one way to do that is through the resources that are available. So JDP.org, Jewish Voice for Peace, is one of the most effective advocates for peace and justice among Palestinians here in the United States, and it's run by Jews. Uh, and they have an incredibly easy way to advocate. So send you an email link, you click on it, you can send a letter to Congress, you can sign a petition to the president. We can, it's just a very, very simple way to be involved in advocacy through the umbrella of the Jewish organization. But most important, I think, in your question for me is to recognize the effectiveness of this anti-Semitic label that's being thrown around. And I have finally said, for me, enough is enough. I was labeled anti-Semitic in an Oxford newspaper 15 years ago because I had the audacity in an editorial to ask about the justice of the wall. Nothing about Judaism at all. I just asked if it was right for the sons and daughters of Holocaust survivors to build a wall and to wall people into a ghetto. And one of the rabbis in Knoxville wrote an editorial rebuttal and said that I was anti-Semitic for even asking this question. And I am tired of it. I'm tired of my Jewish friends and my Jewish colleagues tossing that label around when I question the Zionist policies of the state of Israel that in my view has nothing to do with Judaism. Right. So but I think at the same time, violence and violent rhetoric is increasing here. And we need to stand firmly against that rhetoric, just like we need to stand against the, the rhetoric in Europe against Muslims, and we need to stand against the rhetoric of president, presidential candidates against Muslims. But we also need to stand up and say that standing against Jewish violence violence against Jews has nothing to do with Palestinians, and standing up for the justice of Palestinians has nothing to do with Jews, and don't dare me call me an anti-Semite for saying that. I think we've got to have it. we got time for one more question, really. If there's a solution to this issue, it's, it's, in the, it's way down the road. It happens the way everything in our country, at least, that's all I know, changes. It changes not by changing elected officials. It comes from changing the vote. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we've got. That, that's our only chance. Anything we want to get to, we've got to change the vote. So this is why yeah. we can do. This is why what's, what's happening here is important because this Washington won't change until the voters change. The voters won't change until the education changes. And so, uh, you know, as we're out of time, I guess the final charge that I would offer is just to say, um, continue to be listening to those alternative narratives. Do not take what we say as gospel. I think that we put in a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of academic study, a lot of time on the ground to be able to say with confidence what we're saying. But just because we say it doesn't mean you have to believe it. What you now know, as, as my dad always tells his groups when he takes them over there, you can no longer go back home and say, I didn't know what was happening. That's the same thing. You, you no longer get to say, I didn't know. Done. You don't get to say it anymore. You do know. Now what you can do is decide how much more, you know, you can now say, I know that there's a different narrative, and now I want to do my own study to, un to figure out what I think about this, not just what the McRae's think. So let us simply just be people who have pulled back the curtain a little bit and said, there's something else back there you should go check out. I would encourage you all to go check it out. And for us also to say, we should not need perfect victims in order to be able to advocate for someone. In other words, in order to be able to say what's happening to Palestinians is not fair, we should not need the Palestinians to be without guile. Perfection should not be a prerequisite to freedom. 
right? We, don't, we didn't need all black people to have never done anything wrong to be able to say that we shouldn't deny them access to movie theaters and the vote, right? Should, we don't need that from women who we denied the vote here for many, many, many years. We should not have to say that people need to be without fault, without guile, without any kind of imperfection in order to be able to say they should not be occupied and controlled and their freedom denied. So at least let's kind of move forward with that to say there are more narratives here. Please try to learn about them uh, on your own to the extent that you can. And beware of this mentality of the myth of the perfect victim, that that's what we need in order to be able to advocate for people who are suffering injustice. Thank you all so much. Thank you.